Okay, hi, uh, welcome to an optional lecture for the history section for uh, Japanese history. So I'm gonna focus on uh, gender in, it says modern Japan here, we're really just gonna go uh, from the Meiji period to uh, wartime, so into the 1930s, early 1940s. Uh, and the reason I'm inserting this here, um, and also not going further than the end of the war, um, is that gender played an important role in the cultural divide in the 1920s, which was the subject of the last lecture that I recorded and released to you. So this seems like a good time to depart from our chronological narrative um, and really focus in on this question of gender. Uh, looking broadly at gender in society uh, from the 19th century. I do want to, uh, because of that context, uh, do a little bit of review here. The last lecture focused um, on the cultural context of the interwar years in Japan, um, and they were very, as I said over and over again, complex and conflicted. Uh, and one of the uh, sort of problems with the uh, sort of complex and conflicted culture of interwar Japan uh, was related to uh, the question of sort of the place of women in society. And in that lecture, we uh, we talked about the sort of problem of the the moga, the modern girl, and the cafe waitress, and the housewife, and so these sort of representative groups of women and how they were perceived in Japan. Um, I want to take a step back here in this lecture and do something a little bit more uh, wide ranging, and especially think about the struggle for uh, women's political rights. So we're going to start with the pre-modern household just very briefly. Uh, as Kathleen Uno has shown, in general, the pre-modern and pre-industrial Japanese household uh, what tended not to be divided into a really strict binary of women doing reproductive or inside work and men performing productive or outside work. Hierarchies of gender and seniority existed within each family. Uh, but the responsibilities for the daily tasks of household management were generally not split strictly upon uh, lines of gender. On the other hand, gender distinctions in household tasks and labor tended to be greater in the wealthier, higher status families of pre-modern, pre-industrial Japan. Um, and part of this is because they could afford that luxury. Uh, in fact, the richest households in Japan often removed women from both productive and reproductive labor, other than pregnancy and birth, of course. In city and countryside, rich women of all classes largely escaped the physical drudgery of productive and reproductive work. Poor women, however, toiled to earn a living and to do daily tasks. For both men and women of the well-to-do echelons of society, a non-working woman was a status symbol. Needless to say, for better and for worse, and uh, mostly for worse, this is hardly a sentiment or situation limited to pre-modern Japan. In any case, the stricter gender dichotomies of the samurai class did have a sort of performative, aspirational effect on other Japanese, especially over time. In other words, that was the sort of class that people tried to imitate in their manners, right? their social betters, if you will. And some of this was enhanced by the spread of literacy in late Tokugawa, which it's kind of ironic when you think about it, but uh, that allowed Confucian-influenced, uh, very gender-segregated, sexist, uh, upper-class moral teachings to penetrate into more modest households. 
Um, on the other hand, one of the most interesting uh, travel logs by an English-speaking author who uh, traveled in Japan in the Meiji period, uh, and that's the British adventure Isabella Bird. Yes, that is a woman. She's uh, very unusual in that sense. Um, so it has some interesting observations about this sort of uh, daily life um, gendering of labor. Uh, so she wrote in 1878 that men were actively and enthusiastically involved in childrearing, uh, at least according to her observations. Uh, Bird's account of rural villages in northern Japan is worth quoting at length, and I'm going to do that, uh, not only because it's revealing of these gender roles and dynamics uh, before uh, modernization and industrialization changed Japan, um, but also because it tells us something about family values, in particular the place of children within the family. And finally, it just happens to be quite beautifully written. So after some remarks on commerce in the village that are also quite thought-provoking, uh, Bird writes, for example, quote, These villages are full of shops. There is scarcely a house which does not sell something. Where the buyers come from and how a profit can be made is a mystery. Uh, by the way, that's still somewhat true in some places in Japan. Anyway, but after sort of observations like that, uh, Bird describes what she saw in the town of Nikko, which was then a small village in uh, what is now rural Tochigi Prefecture, rather than a massive tourist trap in what is now rural Tochigi Prefecture. So she wrote, Early, the village is very silent while the children are at school. Their return enlivens it a little, but they are quiet, even at play. At sunset, the men return, and things are a little livelier. You hear a good deal of splashing in baths, and after that they carry about and play with their younger children, while the older ones prepare lessons for the following day by reciting them in a high, monotonous twang. At dark, the paper windows are drawn, the amado, or external wooden shutters, are closed, the lamp is lighted before the family shrine, supper is eaten, the children play at quiet games around the andong, and about... 10. The quilts and wooden pillows are produced from the press, the amado are bolted, and the family lies down to sleep in one room. The children sit up as late as their parents, and are included in all their conversation. I never saw people take so much delight in their offspring, carrying them about, or holding their hands in walking, watching and entering into their games, supplying them constantly with new toys, taking them to picnics and festivals, never being content to be without them and treating other people's children also with a suitable measure of affection and attention. Both fathers and mothers take a pride in their children. It is most amusing about six every morning to see twelve or fourteen men sitting on a low wall, each with a child under two years in his arms, fondling and playing with it and showing off its physique and intelligence. To judge from appearances, the children form the chief topic at this morning gathering. At night, after the houses are shut up, Looking through the long fringe of rope or rattan which conceals the sliding door, you see the father, bending his ugly, kindly face over a gentle-looking baby, and the mother, who more often than not has dropped the kimono from her shoulders, enfolding two children destitute of clothing in her arms. For some reasons they prefer boys, but certainly girls are equally petted and loved. The children, though for our ideas too gentle and formal, are very prepossessing in looks and behavior. They are so perfectly docile and obedient, so ready to help their parents, so good to the little ones, and, in the many hours which I have spent watching them at play, I have never heard an angry word or seen a sour look or act. But they are little men and women, rather than children, and their old-fashioned appearance is greatly abided by their dress, which, as I have remarked before, is the same as that of adults. 
It was in these same 1870s that the Meiji government propagated the phrase good wife, wise mother, or ryōsai kimbo, to designate a new gendered division of space and labor for modern Japan. As Susan Holloway wrote, this new coinage, quote, reflects the realization by Japanese government officials in charge of facilitating Japan's swift transition to modernity, that women would contribute to the new nation by taking a more active role in childbearing, as well as engaging in patriotic activities, and by contributing to the family's income as a professionalized household manager. In the mobilization of the populace for the state that the Meiji architects so ardently desired, women were to play a critical role then but that role would be in the private, domestic, non-political sphere only. The obverse of this, of course, was that men would dominate the public, political spheres as producers and decision-makers. While men worked, women would be mostly limited to the valued function of mother, producing and raising the next generation of workers, soldiers, and good wives and wise mothers. The subordinated function of wife as well would be theirs, and, especially while young and unmarried, they would be cheap disposable labor in the factories and stores of New Japan. Advocates for the right and position of women, uh, rights and position of women began by demanding that women be granted the right of political participation, the right to participate in public affairs and affairs of state. In 1890, as a tiny minority of elite men, uh, just 1% of the most highly taxed men in Japan, were given the vote, uh, which that was the first suffrage in Japan, um, at, at the same time, in, uh, by 1890, women were legally excluded from the new system. So by 1890, the possibility for women to participate in politics was basically eliminated, and a 1900 law, which we'll talk about a little bit later, just firmed that up. It's in that context that over the next 40 years, about uh, 1890 to 1930 or so, the battle for women and their allies was uh, going to be about how to reverse the decisions made uh, up to 1890 and then reaffirmed in 1900 as part of the conservative effort to keep a lid on women in the new modern Japan, while, of course, all the while extracting from them as much value as possible. Even when that very small minority of men, again, it's just the top 1% of taxpayers, were granted the right to vote in 1890, all women, along with, quote, priests, teachers of religion, active servicemen, and the insane, were excluded. The legally subordinate position of women was affirmed and reaffirmed in Meiji period laws, including the 1898 Civil Code, which, in the interest of family harmony, quote-unquote, treated women as uh, married women, as, quote, quasi-incapacitated. The provisions on capacity are worth a look. In short, a married woman could not receive or employ capital, could not take out a loan, couldn't purchase assets or property, couldn't participate in a lawsuit, couldn't submit to arbitration, accept or refuse a gift or inheritance, make any contract, or choose where to live without her husband's express consent. Additionally, she could not sue for divorce based on her husband's adultery. This did not work both ways. Women had no rights independent of their husbands. And given that all women were expected to marry, and more importantly that the overwhelming majority did in fact get married, this was a complete legal subordination of women. In part, the definitions of gender relations promoted in late 19th century Japan reflected the archetypal Meiji period desire to remodel the country along western lines, in order, as we've talked about, to compete with the great powers. But it wasn't a simple adoption of western mores either. 
The men of the Iwakura and other Bakumatsu and Meiji period foreign missions had generally been quite put off at least, and at worst horrified by the forwardness and informality of European, and especially American, women. Fukuzawa Yukichi was a notable, if only partial, exception, uh, as memorialized in the rather fabulous photo of him with a young American woman in San Francisco. But in any case, many of the men who shaped Meiji policy and society, uh, and particularly uh, uh, policy toward women, were deeply disturbed by what they had seen abroad. So, as they did simultaneously with the people more generally, the Meiji leadership placed one foot on the gas and the other foot on the brake. Women needed to be mobilized for the sake of the nation and the state, but not too mobilized. So it should be noted that in the 1890s, uh, after the promulgation of the new constitution, the education and interior ministries, for example, began to articulate different visions for women's role in society. In other words, the government had, you know, overlap of, uh, to a certain extent, a sort of unity uh, up to a certain point, but there was diversity within their opinions and ideas about uh, gender roles in society. So the education ministry stressed the power of domesticity and reproductive work. The interior ministry, on the other hand, saw the ideal woman as a patriot, who was household manager, yes, but also supported the household as saver-in-chief on the one hand, and wage laborer outside the home, if necessary, on the other. The interior ministry's vision was of women who, quote, attended girls' higher school, spent an appropriate amount of time on organized philanthropic and patriotic activities, and used the postal savings system, in the words of one Japanese historian. One matter that the government found unanimity on was the exclusion of women from politics. An 1890 law on political association, later folded into the 1900 Peace Police or Chiang Kesatsu Act, banned women from participating in political parties or protests. As a side note, it's not your imagination if you hear a distinctly Orwellian note in Peace Police. In fairness, though, the term could also be, but usually isn't, translated as security. I'm not sure that uh, security police is any better, in, of course, but uh, the, the quote here, uh, which is uh, partly on screen, is from Kyoda Keigo, the police bureau chief of the Home Ministry. And he, he was defending the 1890 law in the lower house of the Diet. Uh, and this is from his testimony. Quote, Women in Japan have always ruled inside the home. They are the ones who must attend to family education and other matters. What would happen if women joined political associations or engaged in political discussions? Family education would be hindered terribly. If they are allowed to join political associations, they will neglect their duties as women. Such a situation would greatly disturb household management, as well as harm family education. Such a provision would produce grievous results for the future of the state. Now, given that all of this had not even been true even in Kyoda's own lifetime, it's a remarkable testament to the power of uh, Genesis amnesia, uh, which we've also encountered uh, in the writings of Basil Hall Chamberlain. Uh, Genesis amnesia is the term used by the French social theorist uh, Pierre Bourdieu. In Tak Fujitani's eloquent summary, uh, Genesis amnesia is a phenomenon that, quote, produced a forgetting of history to the extent that recent fabrications had quickly, quickly passed into the subconscious area of the seemingly natural and self-evident. Education provides a fine illustration of the new paradoxes of how to construct gender in this new modern Japanese state and society. 
These paradoxes played out both within elite circles and between government and advocates for women's rights. For many of the elite men who shaped Meiji uh, policy, on the one hand, educated women would make better mothers, particularly when it came to raising better children. On the other, too much or the wrong kind of education would be wasteful or even counterproductive. Education for women, then, was a tool to mold ethical wives and mothers who led by example in the family and in, and in civil society. For women's rights advocates, too, education was a major focal point of early activity. As Barbara Maloney wrote, quote, it was the approach to rights through education that dominated early discussions. Suffrage would have to wait until the development of women's sense of themselves as public persons. In other words, women activists and their allies, a good number of whom were pesky socialists, saw education as a way for women to gain a greater foothold in the new system, which they still saw as influx, influenceable. According to this line of thinking, educated women, valued by the state for their role in the family and civil society, would have a greater basis for demanding rights. In other words, they would be able to prove their usefulness and demand something in return. And while the purpose of uh, public education for girls was limited, there were both immediate and long-term positive effects on women and on society at large, some envisioned by bureaucrats, politicians, etc., and some not. In this sense, the increasing number of girls in school was a pretty much unmitigated positive development, even if not immediately so. Uh, the numbers shown here uh, in the slide uh, demonstrate the rapidity of that change. So in 1895, only about 44% of girls attended elementary school. By 1920, for all intents and purposes, that number is about 100%. And that's a fairly extraordinary leap in the course of just a quarter century. In that same year, 1920, there were 150,000 or so girls in secondary school, triple the number in just 1910, a decade earlier. In other words, in 1910, there were only 50,000 girls in secondary school. To add 100,000 in a decade is quite astounding, really, even if education was imperfect by our standards today. In contrast, as noted above, the Interior Ministry took a role in promoting women's role as patriots. The ministry found uh, quite a few allies in civil society. One example was the Patriotic Women's Association, or Aikoku Fujinkai, uh, members of whom are uh, pictured here. Uh, this organization was uh, created in 1901 and was affiliated with the ministry. Its purpose was political by some reckonings, but outside the realm of politics in the sort of strictest sense. As Vera Mackey observed, while women were politically confined to excuse me, confined to the domestic sphere by Article 5 of the Public Police Law of uh, Public Peace Police Law of 1900, their support for the militarist state could be sought where necessary. The association was formed to comfort women, uh, excuse me, wounded and deceased soldiers of foreign wars and their families. Uh, with government support, the group's membership reached nearly a half million during the Russo-Japanese War of 1904-1905. This, in other words, was officially sanctioned involvement in public, not political, affairs, uh, which did not have the possibility of threatening or changing the political or social regimes of modern Japan. The basic structures set in place by the turn of the 20th century were relatively stable until the interwar years. 
The stability of the state and its systems is one reason that post-World War I feminists, and by this time the term is apt, even if not maybe so much before, before that, in other words, in Meiji. Uh, by this time, feminists sought not to influence the system from the home and civil society, but rather to change it in the political arena. This would require the vote. The representative organization of this era was the New Woman Association, or Shinfujin Kyokai. The NWA, New Woman Association, was headed by Hiratsuka Raicho, Ichikawa Fusae, and Okumumeo. Uh, and they began to operate uh, and, and sort of advocate openly for women's suffrage in 1921. Hiratsuka and Ichikawa were two of modern Japan's most important, influential early feminists. And I know this is Hiratsuka Raicho here. I think that's Ichikawa Fusai, but I also have the feeling this might be her. So I'm not I'm not 100% sure. Uh, Hiratsuka is quite distinctive. Um, but in any case, this is the New Women Association. Um, though Hiratsuka and Ichikawa agreed generally that in order to advance women's rights, it would be critical for women to first identify as a sort of class in and of themselves, cutting across other divisions within society. Uh, Hiratsuka and Ichikawa represented different positions vis-a-vis -vis the origin and nature of women's rights. And they were typical of the time, in that they generally sought rights but not explicit equality, which is an important distinction. Uh, in other words, not explicit equality with men. Hiratsuka, who in 1911 launched modern Japan's most important early women's literary journal, called Seito, or Blue Stocking, appealed poetically to the fact that the highest deity in the Japanese pantheon, Amaterasu, was the uh, sun goddess and the alleged originator of the imperial line. Um, this is unusual in world sort of uh, uh, mythology, right, to have a sun goddess as opposed to god. Anyway, Hiratsuka's famous manifesto for Blue Stocking began like this. In the beginning, woman was the sun. Today, she is the moon, living through others, reflecting the brilliance of others. Now, Blue Stocking, a journal created for the first time with the brains and hands of today's Japanese women, raises its voice. The new woman does not merely destroy the old morality and laws constructed out of male selfishness, but day by day attempts to create a new kingdom based on the spiritual values and surpassing brilliance of the sun. The new woman is not simply covetous of power for its own sake. She is simply crying out for strength, the strength to fulfill her own hallowed mission. Incidentally, the title of the journal, Seito, or Blue Stocking, was a pejorative used in contemporary Japan for unladylike modern women. Using the term was a way of reclaiming the language and thereby subverting the ideology it represented. Hiratsuka was a keen critic of the paternalism, the phallocracy of such ideological institutions as marriage and virginity. As Vera Mackey wrote, Hiratsuka argued that most previous commentators had failed to question the conventional assumptions behind such words as virginity and chastity. In the current society, women needed to marry in order to ensure their survival, and virginity was necessary in order to meet the masculine need to monopolize women's sexuality. Morality, customs, and laws, then, were framed in terms of men's desires. When it came to the nature of women's rights, Hiratsuka leveraged the state's emphasis on the special role of women as mothers, perpetuating this Meiji-era conflation of women and motherhood for statist ends to argue that politically active, engaged women made better mothers, 
and that this in turn benefited everyone. In time, and in contrast, Ichikawa rejected what she called Hiratsuka's principle of mother's rights, or boken shugi, for a more inclusive, expansive principle of women's rights, or joken shugi. By the early 1920s, Ichikawa had come to believe that male-female equality would be the key to political empowerment. There were several other important uh, women's rights thinkers and advocates uh, of the period, uh, some of whom were involved uh, both directly and indirectly with the New Women's Association. Among them were uh, Yosano Akiko, Yamakawa Kikue, and Ito Noe. Uh, like Ichikawa, for example, the poet Yosano Akiko saw women's rights as human rights. Yamakawa and Ito were radicals. Yamakawa was a socialist, Ito was an anarchist. Yamakawa was disillusioned by Hiratsuka's incrementalism and willingness to work within the system. She instead attempted to articulate a vision for women that was consonant with her own ideas of class struggle. Ito was editor of Hiratsuka's magazine from her early 20s, but was conveniently knocked off with her anarchist lover in the chaos after the 1923 earthquake. This sort of opportunistic extra-legal violence was a deterrent uh, to many in the 1920s. It was, uh, in that sense, reminiscent of the Great Treason Incident a decade earlier. Internal differences notwithstanding, the New Woman Association, the NWA, made two central demands. Both were meant to be achievable ways to change the system, but the first eventually had to be abandoned. That demand was to change the civil code's divorce conditions. The NWA lobbied to allow women to divorce, or not to marry, men with sexually transmitted diseases. This was a strategic move. The NWA argued that venereal diseases posed a greater threat to the family as a whole, and a wife and children individually, than the threat to male dominance in the family, an actual criticism, uh, posed by changing the divorce laws. In effect, this was a way to prevent men from extramarital sex, since, unlike prostitutes and adulterers, Ryozai Kimbo, uh, these good wives and wise mothers, were, by definition, virtuous virgin brides, and therefore would not be STD positive, unless their husbands were unfaithful. The second demand of the NWA was for a revision of the hated Peace Police Act of 1900. This was, as I've noted, the act uh, in which prohibited women from membership in political parties, and even from attending political rallies or speaking on politics at all in public. Their effort met with staunch opposition in the boorish, ultra-conservative House of Peers. Uh, in 1921, for instance, one upper, upper house aristocrat editorialized, uh, in his own newspaper, by the way, about women politics. The mansplaining Baron Fujimura called women's participation in politics rubbish and argued that, quote, it goes against natural laws in a physiological as well as a psychological sense. It is not women's function to be active in political movements alongside men. The woman's place is in the home. Her role is a social and educational one. The concept of women's rights as inborn and natural, rather than as instrumental, a means to, in other words, further the agenda of the state and its elites, rubbed many the wrong way. Despite this, in the new, more liberal atmosphere that took, place, uh, took hold after World War I, Concerted lobbying actually achieved partial revision of the law in 1922, but it was only partial. The Diet deleted the provisions of the law that prohibited women from attending and speaking at political rallies, but left in place those that forbid membership in parties. 
women's recognition of women as a single block, uh, an overarching class, if you will, with shared interests, uh, despite their myriad differences. Um, and this was, by the way, something, of course, that the NWA had been advocating since its creation. Um, this sense of, of solidarity or uh, recognition of mutual interest was finally achieved on a large scale in 1923, in the wake of the Great Kanto Earthquake. As we will discuss, uh, as we've discussed in the previous lecture, excuse me, uh, the earthquake was a huge force for cultural change in urban Japan, at least. Uh, one of the effects was that uh, women's voluntary groups flocked to the affected areas of Tokyo and Yokohama to provide uh, aid and to assist in post-disaster recovery. What this meant was that diverse groups of women, including many that had previously harbored antipathy toward each other, were thrust into the relief efforts together. And they discovered, in the rubble, uh, a sense of shared identity. So, socialists, anarchists and middle-class Christian teetotaler, teetotalers found common cause, and with it the beginnings at least of a common identity. This solidarity was enshrined in the Tokyo Federation of Women's Organizations, or TFWO, which was an umbrella group that unified all of these organizations for the purpose of providing aid in 1923 and 1924. That same sense of unity was leveraged in the movement for women's suffrage, which took off in the 1920s. Ichikawa Fusai, who was chief of the political bureau of the TFWO, emerged as the leader of the suffrage movement. She had been born in 1893 in what's now Ichinomiya, just north and west, I guess it is, of uh, Naue, where I used to live. She attended the girls' normal school, which is now Aichi University of Education, and in addition to her job as the first female reporter at Naue Shimbun, uh, and the co-founder of the NWA uh, with Hiratsuka Raicho, Ichikawa is interesting. She also worked for the International Labor Organization, and among her other notable achievements, she served five terms in the upper house of the Diet, from the 1950s all the way into the 1980s. And this was uh, despite being somewhat of a controversial figure, uh, because she had actively supported the wartime regime, something we'll come back to at the end of class, uh, if a little bit indirectly. Um, and she was purged at the end of the war by the uh, Americans, by the occup occupying forces and only allowed to return to politics after 1952, when Japan's sovereignty was restored. In any case, suffrage became the focus of women's rights and feminist activism in the early 1920s, both because it was relatively easy to frame as women wanting to contribute to society through political participation on the one hand, and also the fact that women in some of the other victorious nations of World War I were beginning to be recognized for their contributions to the war effort and to society at large. On the other hand, women in Japan were performing a difficult balancing act. Uh, by that time, many Japanese saw the struggle for political rights as an end in itself, uh, rather than as a means by which to improve society, to be selfish. At the risk of repeating some of the chronology which we've already uh, covered and we'll get back to a little bit later, um, it's worth thinking about these early 1920s and the path taken by efforts to win women the vote. At a diet session on uh, February 26th, 1921, a proposal for women to be permitted to be politically active was passed almost unanimously in the lower house of the diet, the House of Representatives. Then, in a pattern that became sickeningly familiar in the coming years, the arch-conservative, reactionary upper house, the House of Peers, 
shot it down. When, as already noted, diverse women act, women's activists uh, discovered commonalities and solidarity as women in the wake of the 1923 Great Kanto earthquake, overcoming their political differences as socialists, Christian teetotalers, manual laborers, etc., they, along with their allies, mounted a more concerted, more coordinated effort to force peers to reconsider its decision. This movement gave rise to the League for the Realization of Women's Suffrage, the Women's Suffrage League, uh, in 1924, and this became the principal women's suffrage organization in the interwar years. In 1925, the Women's Suffrage League, or WSL, petitioned the Diet for civil rights. The suffragists' expectations were high. Three weeks earlier, in late February of 1925, the House of Representatives had granted suffrage to all men, 25 and over. But once again, peers stepped in and kiboshed the whole thing. The Women's Suffrage League, the WSL, encouraged by its successes, though, in the lower house, made a public appeal for what it called Fusem. Uh, and this was a clever sort of uh, pun or, or you know, bit of wordplay, uh, because the kanji for women's vote, Fusem, and universal vote, Fusem, are pronounced, as you might have already noticed, identically as Fusem. So the uh, punchline, I guess, the point of this joke is that you can't really have Fusem without Fusem. In other words, you can't have a universal vote, which is the thing that was being uh, uh, celebrated, without giving women the vote as well. In any case, uh, mediocre punning aside, uh, the return and returning to this chronology, uh, what happened next is that basically 1931 is, for all intents and purposes, uh, so sort of de facto the end of a pre-war women's movement. On the procedural side, uh, once again, the House of Peers shoots down a proposal expanding the franchise to include women. But of equal or greater importance, there were changes to Japanese society in the wake of the Manchurian incident, namely increased jingoism or sort of viral patriotism and an accompanying rhetorical focus on the national collective good over the rights of individuals or groups within society. And this all made it quite difficult to advocate for any rights whatsoever, let alone women's rights. This was a situation that didn't really change until after the end of the war in 1945. Uh, I just want to wrap up here by talking very quickly uh, about the uh, cooperation of women uh, with the war effort. Now I mentioned that Ichikawa Fusai was uh, a, in, an enthusiastic, really, supporter of the Japanese wartime state. Uh, and was purged by the Allied government for it. So this, uh, I have a quote here from the feminist writer uh, Wendy Brown and another one that I want to share with you. Uh, so the first Wendy Brown's quote is about the tendency of feminism to, quote, have a longing to share in power rather than be protected from its excesses. In other words, uh, Brown sees many women's movements um, as actively participating in the, frankly, I, would, I guess you could say evils uh, of the, the, the uh, patriarchies uh, which they ought to be fighting against. Uh, and so this is definitely part of what's happening in the case of Japan. There's another phenomenon, which again is not sort of Japan specific, but uh, it has a specific resonance in uh, wartime Japan. 
Uh, here I want to quote from Tessamara Suzuki, who wrote, With the rising tide of militarism in the 1930s, some sought to win greater recognition for women's social role by emphasizing their own loyalty to the nation and highlighting the crucial contribution of women to the war effort. And that's a, a, an observation that's been made by others as well. Uh, Sheldon Guerin, for example, uh, and um, the perhaps the most prominent uh, of the uh, sort of post-war uh, wave of Japanese feminists, Ueno uh, Chizuko. And the basic idea here is that women kind of had a choice between being third-class citizens and first-class citizens. Right. You could either accept the subordinate role that society had given you, or you could be like, hey, we actually mean something. We can contribute to society and we demand that you treat us as the valuable people that we are. Right. And so if seen within the limited context of that particular society at that particular time, it was in women's interests to be useful to the state. Um, and there was also all of the sort of virtue uh, that accrued. Uh, both in public recognition and in a sense of pride and purpose uh, by being a good person, in other words, a good Japanese. So, of course, not all women uh, uh, did this, neither did all men, but it was a, a fairly dominant uh, strain in the way that Japanese women interacted with the state during wartime, and I hope that we will have time to come back to that. Uh, but we don't right now, so I want to give a quick summary uh, of this short lecture on uh, gender in the first half of the 20th century. Uh, so we started, of course, with the pre-modern, right? Started giving a little bit of background before jumping into that. Um, and uh, I, I tried to uh, explain that pre-modern households were not as strictly gendered um, they were in some ways, but not generally as strictly gendered as modern households had uh, very quickly came to be. Uh, we also talked about the, uh, that phenomenon itself, the modernization and gendering of labor and space. And then one of the reactions to this, which was uh, a feminist movement that primarily focused on suffrage and ultimately failed primarily in the 1920s, uh, the mid-1920s, with the peace preservation law and universal suffrage for men being passed in 1925, uh, and women finding that they had no allies in the House of Peers, in other words, in the upper house of the Japanese government, and therefore were not able to make any inroads uh, politically. And finally, uh, after 1931, you really have a uh, social climate in which advocating for women's rights instead of uh, being part of the war effort, uh, thinking about yourself instead of thinking about the nation, becomes untenable. Uh, and in, in fact, what you have uh, later, specifically and, and mostly after 1937, when you get into a, uh, a more protracted and violent war with China, and then 1941, when you add the U.S. to that, um, is you see women actively uh, and enthusiastically and vocally supporting the government and its war effort, um, in part because uh, it, is in, it is actually in their own self-interest. Uh, so I'm going to uh, stop 